Do you pod? Do you pod? Do you pod? Yes, we pod. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to a very, very special retro spoiler special dedicated to one of, and I don't think this is controversial to say, the greatest films of all time. <laughs> Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Paul W.S. Anderson's Event Horizon. I am so excited to talk about this movie. I don't know if anyone's noticed over the years of the podcast, but I'm a bit of a fan. <laughs> I may have mentioned it once or twice per episode. Uh, very, very excited about this. 1997 horror, of course, infinite space, infinite terror, infinite James Dyer. Hello, welcome. Hell is only a word. The reality <laughs> is me. Hello. It's much, much worse. <laughs> so much worse. It's like Pinhead if he's taken all the pins out. That's basically what yeah, James that's me. That's right me. Now. So much worse. Oh, my word. Locked, cocked and ready to rock is Helen O'Hara. It's so true. That's what so many people say about me so much of the time. This pod is fucked. Can I, Hello. Can I instantly just pull Smitty up on that? I'm fairly certain it's cocked locked. He says locked cocked, but it should be cocked locked. Because I know this because Jack think... Reacher speaks about this in one of the books. That you cock it, then you lock it with the safety and it's cocked locked and ready to rock. Well, I don't so. think uh, Smithy's the, the sharpest tool in no. the box, is he? You know? Yeah. But one of the greatest death scenes in history, I'm going to say. I'm going to say everything in this movie is one of the greatest things in history. All right? So yeah. I'm going to, um, this is where I am on Event Horizon. Accurate. Don't you come running to me with, oh, Chris, it's not that good. Or, oh, Chris, you, are you using your eyes correctly? No, because I ripped my eyes out some time ago. <laughs> where we are going, we, we don't need eyes, eyes to see. see. <laughs> good Lord. I love the fact that he keeps his accent in this and actually has like a Kiwi flag on his yeah. jumpsuit. So they're like 100%. So mm. Sam yeah. Neil. Sam Neil. Unfiltered Neil. I have loved this movie since the moment I saw it, and it <laughs> absolutely scared the living bejesus out of me. Back in 1997, I was a student in York, which is a city in England, and <laughs> uh, myself and a couple of my allow myself to introduce myself. Uh, same year as Austin Powers, uh, a couple of friends, and I, housemates, and I went to see Event Horizon. We knew nothing about it apart from the rather fairly shabby poster with Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne's heads massive over a, a spaceship uh, and then the, the tagline infinite space infinite terror infinite Fishburne infinite Neil <laughs> was that the full that tagline? Was the, that, that was the full, full tagline, tagline. Yeah. It, it was a gatefold if you, uh, if you of course, took it I just infinite to, Isaacs infinite I Isaacs I just like to keep, keep unfolding this mm. is where I first met Jason Isaacs so to speak metaphorically and then I met mm. Jason Isaacs and and, and just <laughs> proceeded to ask nothing but event horizon questions for 25 years. I mean, they've they've all been baffled. Like every time you you two have, have uh, interviewed, <laughs> not Bono and the Edge, you guys yeah. have interviewed any member of this cast. You've in, insisted on crowbarring in some event yeah. horizon questions to their general bafflement, it has to be said. True, but also Bono and the Edge, I have it in good authority, are huge, <laughs> huge fans, fans of this yeah, film as well. When they, they when they finished watching event horizon for the first time, Bono turned to the Edge and went, I have found what I'm looking for. So wow, and yep. it's infinite space, <laughs> infinite terror. The streets really do have no name in space. <laughs> the Lewis and Clark was originally called the Bono and Edge. So you know, wow, just a little known fact. <laughs> I mean, are we using fact correctly there? Just a question. This anyway. band is fact. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, uh, listen, we can we can wax lyrical and nostalgic about Event Horizon all day long, uh, but first we should hear from the man who made it. I think that's only fair, right? Absolutely reasonable. So I wanted to do this for a long time, and uh, luckily a couple of months ago I managed to get some time, I wrangled some time with Paul W.S. Anderson himself 
to talk about Event Horizon, which has got a big old bells and whistles Blu-ray re-release as well in this country. Very, very excited about that. And we sat down, we had a big old chat about some plot stuff, about some making of stuff, and had a, a good old time. I think a good old time was had by all. So here we go. Paul W.S. Anderson talking about the masterpiece that is Infinite Event, Infinite Horizon. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this very, very special Event Horizon retro spoiler podcast by the film's director, Paul W.S. Anderson. How the devil are you, sir? I'm bloody marvellous. Thank you for asking. This is a spoiler podcast. For a film that came out 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a film I've long wanted to dig into uh, with you. Uh, regular listeners of the Empire podcast will know I bang on about Event Horizon pretty much every single week. Uh, this is a film that terrified me and my housemates at university when I first saw it in 1997. So first of all, thank you for that. It's my pleasure. Terrifying people since 1997. I should... Uh... <laughs> I have that put on my gravestone. You absolutely should. And, uh, you know, and, and as we, we talked about, because we just uh, did something for the magazine as well, anytime I speak to anyone from Event Horizon, I managed to crowbar a question or 10 about the film in. Uh, and many of those questions have been directed to Sam Neill over the years. And Sam Neill's where I wanted to start uh, with this and dig into the character of, of Dr. William Weir, because there is a version of this movie where he's the hero. And I, I've always found that really interesting. You've got this guy who is just coming off Jurassic Park, just a couple of years after Jurassic Park. And even though he's been the Antichrist on screen before, and he's no stranger to horror films, I think the audience trusts him from the off. But you do this lovely subversive, subversive thing with, with Weir, where he becomes the bad guy. Well, I, I mean, that was, that was very much intentional because, um, you know, he was the man... He was the man that saved the children in Jurassic Park. I mean, he, he was the man. I mean, he was great. He was, a, he was a hero in the kind of old school Gary Cooper kind of hero mold. Um, and he even wore a kind of Gary Cooper-esque hat in Jurassic Park while he was saving the children. You know, he was like a, he was the good white hat cowboy. And um, you're correct. He has appeared in things like Omen 3, The Final Conflict. But I was very aware because I went to go see that movie in the cinema and I was one of the only people in the cinema when it when it opened. Not many people saw that. It wasn't a very successful film. So and and maybe because of that, he hadn't really done a huge amount of horror after that. You know, he'd established a a career as a reliable kind of leading man or second lead who was trustworthy. Because yeah. he's Sam Neill. Um, but I knew having seen him be Damien, he had this darkness inside of him. And I thought, how fabulous if, if he starts as Gary Cooper and then turns into the Antichrist. And I knew Sam was the man to, to do that. Was, was Weird the bad guy in the, in the Philip Eister script that you got? Yeah, he was always, he always went, um, he always went mad. Um, okay. He was always haunted by the death of his wife, the suicide of his wife, which you suspected was in some way his fault because he had neglected her because he was so focused on building his life's work, which was the event horizon. Mm. Um, yeah, he was always the bad guy. I just think he went spectacularly off the rails in my version of the movie. In, <laughs> in Philip's version of the movie, he was the bad guy, but he was really, he became a memorable bad guy. He became like an Al Pacino, look at me, here comes the bad guy kind of bad guy in, in Event Horizon. 
Yeah, he's got the he's got the lines, the, the very very quotable lines, you know. And now she has a another crew. Now she has us. You know, I am home. Uh, you know, do you see? Do you see? Do you see? Which I constantly do in the podcast. Uh, were those lines that uh, again was that something that you added? You, you know, I know Andrew Kevin Walker came on onto the the film. Was that something that you added as you were prepping the movie? To be to be totally honest, I can't remember um, <laughs> exactly. Because it was a it was a few weeks ago that we made the movie. How many but weeks most ago? of the dialogue most of the dialogue is Philip's dialogue because um, we brought Andrew on very for a very specific purpose. Was in in Philip's original scripts um, there was more suggestion that what was causing the the disturbance on the event horizon was kind of alien in some form. It was aliens from another dimension. They were quite tentacular. You know, they they had a an obvious kind of Lovecraftian vibe about them. Mm. And of course, once you, once you start dealing with Lovecraft, you start thinking about religion. And it was my idea to kind of push it even further and, and, and get rid of the tentacular Lovecraftian aliens and go, what if this other dimension isn't just a dimension of these, these beasts, but it's, it really is hell or what we have perceived as hell from our dimension. You know, maybe people have glimpsed it before, and that, that has kind of affected what humans regard as hell, and has formed kind of a religious idea of hell. But that's what the other dimension is, and and that's what I brought Andrew Kevin Walker in for, mm. because having been a big fan of Seven and all the kind of religious imagery and dialogue that he'd used there, I thought that's that's what I want for this, and we made it more specific. Um, to being kind of a, he- a dimension of hell or something that you could construe as hell. So Andrew did a, a kind of limited amount of work on it, but all focused on hell. So a lot of the, the mad Dr. Weir stuff, I'm sure, was Philip's original dialogue. If, if it was related to hell, it would have been Andrew. But, you know, that was a... That was a he, he came up with... He helped me come up with concepts... But then we drew back quite a lot because, you know, the actors were never keen on saying hell. Mm. Um, and everybody thought it would, be, it would be better if we were a little more vague. We weren't quite so on the nose. You know, we didn't want to be, uh, we didn't want to say, oh, it's a gateway to hell. You know, um, we wanted to be, we wanted people to make their own minds up about it. You know, what really is on the other side of the third containment? You know, I got asked that question a lot. And I... I never answered people. You know, I never specifically said it was hell. <laughs> and, and I never answered people because I never in my own mind had made my mind up about it. I liked the vagueness of it. I liked, and I liked the open-ended feeling of the movie at the end where we don't tie everything up in a nice, neat bow. And I think that's one of the things that maybe commercially hurt us when we first released the movie uh-huh. was the fact that, you know, it didn't have a super satisfying ending. You know, the monster didn't die. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like the end of Alien, where the kill the alien, that's it, it's dead. <laughs> you know, this there was a there was a there was a vagueness to it, yeah, and there was an ambiguity to it, and I think over time that's allowed people to kind of develop their own thoughts about the movie, and I think that has allowed the movie to remain something that kind of is a talking point, and that people can debate, and I, I like that. It's it's really interesting in that uh, you know, Alien is obviously an influence on the film. But Weir, to me, strikes me as someone who is both Ripley and ultimately the alien, which I've never really seen before. And I think that's, that's a really, really cool approach. 
Yeah, I mean, Alien was definitely a, an influence, but I mean, we were influenced, I would say, as much by classic haunted house movies as kind of like outer space movies. Yeah. So you have that moment, the, the haunting moment where there's a banging on the door, and but you yes, don't see what's behind yeah, it. De- definitely. And, and, you know, the haunting, Robert Wise's version of the haunting, you know, it, it's the classic it's the classic question, which was also kind of um, asked in The Shining: is 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 Jack Nicholson is he being haunted by the Overlook Hotel, or is Jack Nicholson haunting the Overlook Hotel? Is all the problems in the Overlook brought there by the people, or is it the place that's doing it to them, or is it a combination of the two? And that's exactly the same as the haunting. You know, you get the feeling that these people have brought their own demons to the house. And then the deem- the house really just amplifies their own demons. And again, with Weirds, it's fascinating because he is essentially the architect of this this ship. And so he he arrives on this ship, and you see it. It's basically this I don't know this this depiction of this diseased mind. He's built this he's built this ship with all kinds of spikes and corridors that are designed to kill you. I mean, this man is clearly not well, Paul. Clearly not well. He's not. I mean. He wouldn't get a job at Tesla, I tell you that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, and I, I think Sam plays it really, really well. Because yeah. when you rewatch the movie, I mean, you can, say, you, you can tell from the moment he's shaving, this man is not well. This man has problems. Um, you don't really know anything about him. You don't know who the picture of the woman is on, on his wall. But he he has problems, and then that look in his eye when they the the clouds part and they finally see the event horizon, and it's as horrific as it looks. And he goes, "The event horizon." You're like, "Oh my god!" You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be going in that ship. <laughs> well, I, I certainly wouldn't be going in it with him. And of course, uh, Fishburne does exactly the right thing, which he he leaves Sam Neill behind, yeah. and he doesn't take him on the ship for the first exploration. Yeah. It was very interesting, actually, because, uh, and I think it was, I can't remember whether it was Jolie or Jason who pointed it out to me, but on that original exploration, all of the Americans go on the ship, all the American actors, and all of the British actors stay behind and watch it on TV screens, <laughs> British and uh, from, from New Zealand, obviously, in Sam's case. Yeah. And... Uh, and I'm like, oh my god! I never, re- it never had really occurred to me. And they all have blue eyes as well. There's Jolie and there's Jason, and all their blue eyes are kind of popping, and they're watching, they're watching the horror unfold from a distance. And uh, whereas the Americans are kind of going in there and <laughs> going in there with all guns blazing and getting into terrible, terrible trouble, while us Europeans go, oh yeah, you, you go ahead, you go into the event horizon. I'll be fine back with Lewis and Clark. Yeah, I've seen this movie. I know how it ends. So I'm just going to stay here and I will, I will be fine if that's okay with you. Yeah, I have to say Sean Pertwee uh, makes me laugh so much every time I see this film because uh, Smithy's attitude is just, no, fuck that. I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. No, thank you. All the way through. Yeah, he's, he, that was partly how he was written, but, but Sean definitely kind of amped it up. I, I felt, you know, I'd worked with Sean before on um, several times. Um, on shopping was the the movie that we did before, but then we'd worked on a TV project before that. Um, and uh, but I I felt like the character of Sean Pertwee, you know, came into focus when we were doing Event Horizon. You know, his his kind of mannerisms, the way he spoke, that it was really it was a kind of classic Sean performance. Yeah, 
I re- really, uh, really liked what he did in the movie. I remember when um, he's sitting in the pilot's seat and it's when the Lewis and Clark gets hit by a gravity wave mm-hmm. and we're setting up all of these sparks everywhere because I wanted to do as much practical as possible. I didn't want to, obviously the movie has CG enhancement, but I wanted to build big real sets. I wanted the event horizon to be a real haunted house, like a, to feel like we'd gone on location and shot it. We'd found a spaceship and just gone and shot inside of it. Um, so we built as much as possible and all the effects were as practical as possible. So when you have those big explosions and all hell is breaking loose, we did that, you know, <laughs> and, um, and we made it really believable for the actors that they were, they were in a spaceship that was falling apart. And I remember, Sean, we, there was a technician and he was putting the, these sparks like right underneath Sean's seat. And he came up to me and said, Paul, that pointed right at my balls. I go, yeah, but Sean, you're really going to, you're going to be in the moment. And uh, he certainly was. It's that moment where he dives away from his seat with the big yeah. spark. You're just desperate to get away from these sparks. <laughs> Oh my god! And he's got he's got an amazing death scene. We don't see him die, but his his reaction shot is yeah. fantastic. He's got a he's got a great death, and he's got just he it was wonderful. He did a great job. The only thing that he got wrong was his original haircut, because I remember he he came to see me in pre production and he'd had his hair bleached white, and uh, so he kind of and it was all spiky, and he he just looked like something out of the Fifth Element. Which is a great movie, but it's not the kind of tone of what we what I was trying to do with Event Horizon. So that's why he has that buzz cut because it's like, sorry, Sean, but I, you might like the hair, but I'm afraid it all has to go. Oh my god! Um, so I, I know I know that uh, you don't necessarily have an opinion or or wish to say definitively whether it's hell or not that the Event Horizon goes to, but the the end of the movie itself, the very very end. Can you talk about whether that is a hallucination in your eyes uh, or is that real? So when Weir appears at the end to Jolie Richardson at the end of the movie, is that a hallucination or is it actually happening? Well, I don't, it's not really Sam Neill in the rescue helmets. No, mm-hmm. um, I, that's, but have they escaped? Absolutely not. Because, you know, they all brought their problems and their demons to the event horizon and, and the event horizon kind of took advantage of those and turned their demons against them, whether it was Kathleen Quinlan's guilt for abandoning her, her kind of ailing son, or whether it was um, Sam Neill's guilt for kind of allowing his wife to commit suicide. Mm. Um, and now Jolie Richardson has a new set of demons, and, and that is her experiences on the event horizon. So the, the, she's internalized. Whatever happened to her on the event, I feel she's internalized. And she's, she's taking hell with her. So it doesn't matter where she goes after this. You know, she's taking a little piece of the event horizon with her and it's going to cause problems. I mean, that is one hell of a bleak ending, <laughs> I have to say as well. Well, 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 in the door. Yeah, I know. And um, so the movie, you know, the movie never tested well, because as you probably know, when it comes to tests, you know, it's really all about how movies end. You know, how does it make you feel when you walk out of the cinema? And uh, Paramount were always very concerned about how low the test results are. But I said, well, but look at the movie. It's like, you can't, you're not going to walk out of this movie going, that was great. I had a great time. Yay. I mean, it's not, you're not walking out of a comedy or a feel-good action movie or, or love, actually. You know, 
people walked out of Event Horizon and they were traumatized. I mean, I went to several test screenings and I went to screenings of the movie when it was on release. And people walking out, they were shocked. I mean, some people couldn't talk. Some people were like, oh my God, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen. Some people were outraged. And I've, I've had outrage still. Some people go, oh, you made that movie? That movie's disgusting. It terrified me. And I'm like, well, it is a horror movie. I mean, that's kind of, it's doing its job. That's what it was <laughs> supposed to do. If you don't want to be terrified, you probably shouldn't go see a movie like that. So, you know, the movie was never, it was never going to test well, but it really had an impact on people. And I, I think that's why, again, you know, the movie has had a life beyond its original theatrical release because that impact has lasted and people have talked about it. And even, you know, watching it, whether you download it and you stream it, you know, it still, it still has that kind of impact. I always felt good about, about what we'd done and how bold it was because I remember, you know, I, I told you I really liked Andrew Kevin Walker's work. And um, I had gone to the premiere of Seven in LA, you know, which was his big breakthrough movie because he wrote the script for that. And, and Seven was a movie I loved. But I was very aware, because I'd made Mortal Kombat for New Line, who also made Seven, mm. that they were very, very unsure about that movie. You know, now you look at it and you go, it's a masterpiece. It's a great movie. But at the time, they, they, they were so ready to pull the, the movie out of cinemas, like after a day, you know, that, because they, the movie had tested really badly. But, you know, the ending, it's Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box. Sorry, I know that's a bit of a spoiler, but we are doing a spoiler. <laughs> you know, how are you going to, how are you going to have, you can't walk out of that movie going, yeah, that was a great movie. Nine, nine out of 10, you yeah. know, it's, it was, and, but that movie had turned out to be a masterpiece. And um, so I thought, you know, I wasn't disheartened by the low test results on Event Horizon because it was just one of those films. It didn't have an ending that was going to make you feel good. So people weren't going to score it high, but that didn't mean it wasn't going to have a big impact on people. But I also think that because uh, we talked uh, and you've talked in the past as well about the truncated post-production process that the, the movie had. And in a way, I think that's kind of a boon because I think if you'd had more time and more money, Paramount might have gone reshoot, do some reshoots, reshoot the ending, change the ending, make it a little bit more upbeat. And you, you couldn't do that. So you had, you, you had the ending that you had. They were definitely pushing to soften the movie for sure. You know, they, at one point, an executive said to me, but we're the, we're the studio that makes Star Trek, you know, and which was a very important and still is a very important franchise to them. And somehow they felt that I was besmirching Star Trek. You know, it was like, because this was another space movie from the same studio, but mine was just horrible. Um, <laughs> that I was a kind of black mark on the, you know, the studio that made Star Trek. So they... Given time, you're quite right. They would have pushed to kind of soften the film. Mm. But I never, we didn't have that footage. You know, if, if you wanted to soften Event Horizon, it would have been a short film. You know, it would have been about 30 minutes long and that's it. If you wanted to cut all the unpleasant stuff out because we didn't have any alternative footage, really. You know, yeah. we could trim down and they did make us trim down the horrific footage. But in retrospect, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing anyway because, you know, it's that classic thing is that, you know, your imagination scares you more than than what a filmmaker can ever do. And, and quite often, you know, these super gory movies, you know, they, they become a real turnoff. Um, I'm not saying that Event Horizon doesn't have gore in it, obviously. Yes. But it, it, it's restrained. And 
I've had a lot of people come up to me and tell me specific things that they were just horrified by, images that they'd seen in Event Horizon that were horrific, that don't exist. You know, that certain images that people told me, and I'm like, that's not in the movie. But because we'd created this sense of dread and we show these flashing quick images, somehow, you know, people are really good at scaring themselves. And they had kind of, they had read into the flashes of imagery that I had shown things that obviously they find disturbing. So quite often, you know, less is more, and it's better to leave it up to people's imaginations than, than actually show them the gore too much. And that's something I also learned in that scene with Kathleen Quinlan in the medical bay, where she has the vision of her son. She pulls back the curtain on the bed, and she sees her son with his kind of withered legs. And originally, um, she looked down at him twice. And the second time she looked at him, there were maggots all over the legs. Right. And, and then after that, Jason Isaacs appears behind her, and it's a big jump. But interestingly, the f- when we first tested the movie, that jump didn't work because the maggots were so revolting that people just turned away from the screen. You know, I, I, lost, I lost the audience. You know, I'd kind of horrified them so much that they disengaged from the movie, so they weren't in the scene anymore. So when Jason turned up, he didn't scare anyone. So by actually taking out some of the imagery and taking out some of the horror, you made it a much more effective jump because once the maggots were gone, people were like, oh, my God, that's terrible, but they didn't look away. And because they didn't look away, when Jason turned up, they were really, really scared. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, did you also trim other things in the movie then? Uh, not just because you were trying to get the running time down, but in order to enhance scares or to enhance the impact of things. For example, DJ's death. I've always wondered if there was a more visceral, gory version of that, even though we see the aftermath. Um, there's, there's, we definitely did takes where he raises his head and he's still alive. Ugh. You know, so he's kind of, he's being flayed alive and he's still alive. Um, but ultimately, you know, we, we chose not to use that for exactly the same reason. You know, I felt like we were, we were kind of tripping into kind of video nasty territory to use a, to use a phrase from the late eighties. Um, you know, it, there were some things that were almost, we pushed the boundaries to know how far was too far. And then having shown it to an audience one time, I, you know, when you sit in an audience of 350 people, you know when they're engaged and you know when they disengage. And you don't want them to disengage. You want to keep them there so that you can keep horrifying them and scaring them. You, want, you never want to break the suspension of disbelief. And some of the imagery was just too potent, I think, and too in your face. And it, we did exactly that. We kind of, we made the audience disengage. So I had to trim it just to kind of keep them in the movie. Mm. And there's a there's a creepiness to some of the imagery as well, which has always fascinated me over the years. The fact that uh, Doctor Weir ultimately rips his eyes out, but his his wife Claire, uh, when we mostly see her, she's mostly eyeless. That that moment in the in the air vent, for example, one of the great one of the great jump scares. The first time we screened that with an audience, yeah, the audience were were terrified terrified and i remember that what this one guy jumped up in front of me and he shouted at the screen said your wife's got no eyes <laughs> well of course she yeah, i mean, you just saw it but it was like people were so worked up by it you know 
<laughs> that, you know, that was that was a test in America where the audiences, you know, are very, very engaged with the film. And, you know, people kind of shouting things at the screen is quite common in the States. <laughs> very useful as well for Dr. Weir. It's like, oh, yeah, thanks for pointing out my wife has no eyes. Yeah. <laughs> That's useful information for you to have. Do you remember where that came from, that notion? Was that was that something that was in, that was in the script about of her? Of him tearing his eyes out? Yeah. yeah. I'm sure it was in Philip's script. You know, because you've you got to remember, you know, it was always whatever was on the other side of the third containment, whatever this other dimension was, it was always a kind of horrific dimension. It always caused madness. But I, I felt by introducing the kind of the more um, religious aspect of it and all the religious iconography in the movie, it just made it a little more relatable. You didn't have to be a Lovecraftian fan to really appreciate the horror. You know, Lovecraft is great, but Lovecraft is only Lovecraft. You know, organized religion, it's been with us for thousands of years. And uh, every big city, you know, in the West has big, cathed big cathedrals and and the event horizon was all based on, on a model of the, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. Mm -hmm. So I just felt like this, making it specifically more religious, just made it more accessible and more horrific to more people. Yes. I love how the first shot in the movie, you, you see the event horizon framed against this, this nebula. And it's very, very clear that it's the in the shape of a crucifix. Well, that's, that's every, every cathedral is built in that cruciform yeah. manner. You know, so we we really went with that, and it was very much you know it was quite groundbreaking at the time because no one had really done that. You know, created a a three D model of an existing piece of architecture in our world, which was Notre Dame Cathedral, then torn it apart and used those constituent elements to make up a spaceship. You know what it what it did was it meant that the event horizon had, was very different looking, but also it had a subliminal religious vibe about it because everything in it was was built we didn't use anything that wasn't in notre dame cathedral so the shapes of the doorways the shapes of the pillars the design of the metal work on the outside was based upon stained glass windows mm. you know the antenna arrays that look like gargoyles you know everything was built from from that kind of gothic material but we we just rendered it we rendered it in metal rather than stone yeah Absolutely. And yeah, you have this notion as well that from a certain point of view, that could be an upside down crucifix if that's what you wanted to to do, if that's how you want to see it. Yes, absolutely. And and you 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 do see the event horizon framed from lots of different angles in the movie. Yeah. But I mean we didn't want to be too kind of in your face. I mean, one of the posters that Paramount wanted was a was a man screaming, kind of crucified to an upside down event horizon. And I just thought it's just like too <laughs> It's too on the nose. I mean, maybe, maybe it would have got more people into the cinema because it was quite a striking image. Yeah. But it was really, I think it would have cheapened the movie in a bad way. You know, I, I felt, you know, clearly the event horizon is not a pleasant place. And it's the product of a fevered and sick imagination, which is, you know, Sam Neill is, is a person who's in trouble. I mean, you can tell from the scene where he's shaving, mm -hmm. you know, this man is not all there. He, he, should, he shouldn't be sent on a mission to outer space. He should be should be going to a doctor's office and talking to someone about his problems. But, uh, you know, I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to be too in your face about it. Of course. Um, you know, we wanted to kind of draw back and ma make some of it subliminal. I wanted to ask a little bit more about that scene, the air duct scene, the air fence scene with, with Claire, um, because it's such a, a, a wonderful scare. 
Was that something that was, that was crafted mainly in the editing room or was that something that you tried to do as practically as possible on set? The whole thing is shot in camera. Um, you know, it's, it's the only thing that we did really CG is take away her eyes. Mm-hmm. And the only kind of editing trick is that we, you know, we had a locked off camera so that, you know, the lights could go down and she wasn't there and then the lights come on again and she is there. But that's a very old school kind of trick from, I mean, the Lumiere brothers were kind mm-hmm. of pulling that kind of shit back in the day. Um, <laughs> so, but otherwise, everything else is all practical and in camera. We built kind of a little labyrinth of, uh, of duct work that we made out of um, circuit boards, actually. Joseph Bennett found these amazing green circuit boards that we sanded down and, and then built the ducts out of them. So Sam crawled in there. And I remember him telling me at one point, you know, Paul, it's very claustrophobic in there. And I'm like, well, that's good, Sam, because, you know, you could sense his claustrophobia and his, his unease. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've told this story before, but, you know, Lawrence Fishburne increasingly as the movie progressed, he would make notes in his script for his character, but he would, he would also quite often and increasingly as we went along, he would write N-A-R beside some of the scenes. And when I asked him what NAR stood for, he said, oh, that means no acting required. Because he felt like the situation that I was going to put him in was so extreme that he just had to react. He didn't have to imagine what it was like. You know, and that's like the claustrophobia of being in those ducts, you know, for, for Fishburne, you know, being hung upside down and revolved for the zero gravity stuff. Yeah. You know, they didn't have to pretend that they were disoriented. You know, the, it, was, it was really happening. And again, you know, as an example, uh, Jolie Richardson came to me at one point and just told me how unpleasant she felt walking onto the sets were. And it wasn't because, you know, because of the cast or the crew, because everyone was really, they were lovely people, but it was just the sets themselves were big and they had this gothic, gloomy, oppressive, unpleasant vibe about them. And, and I think that translated well into the performances of the actors. Yeah, I remember um, we had someone from Empire, this is before I, I started working at the Empire, uh, uh, I don't know if you, you remember this journalist, but a guy called Ian Freer, who I think was also a soldier for a while with you. And he was on Event Horizon for about a week. And he said that, you know, it was such a close knit cast and crew that everybody was really, everyone had bonded, everyone was together, everyone felt that they were in the trenches together on this. They were, but they were also, we were in the trenches for a long time and we were all there was a sense of kind of towards the end, this sense of cabin fever. Because, you know, while it was a very big cabin, you know, the Bond stage in Pinewood Studios is a very, very big cabin. But when you're going there every single day to go and work for 75 days and you're going on to these, what could become very claustrophobic sets as well, that this kind of sense of kind of cabin fever set in, which again, I think was great because, um, you know, we, we partly shot the movie in continuity. And um, we started by doing the daylight station stuff at the very beginning of the shoot, uh, where Sam is told what his mission is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we did all the stuff on the Lewis and Clark, which tends to be the journey towards the event horizon. And then we shot the event horizon stuff. So by the time we got to the event horizon, this kind of feeling of uneasiness and cabin fever had already kind of set into the cast and crew. Um, and then we ended with the climax of the movie. So. You know, I think it worked really, really well for us. 
And that must be uh, must be tricky for the or or good for the actress as well because suddenly you have Sam Neill he's in prosthetics he's uh, occasionally naked also but you're losing people so you'll be losing cast members and that must have an impact you lose Kathleen Quinn and you 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 lose Jack Noseworthy you lose Sean Pertwee and that must have had uh, an impact yeah definitely and also because their death scenes were you know they because I tried to do as much practical and in camera as possible you know. Like Jack, you mentioned, you know, where he's, he's kind of, he gets in an airlock and he evacuates all the oxygen and then blows himself out into the vacuum of space. You know, he's really in there on a rotating rig with blood coming out of his eyes. You know, we put blood rigs between his fingers. So there's blood pouring everywhere. You could feel it and people could see it, you know, and the other actors, because they got on really well, they'd come and watch the other scenes, even if they weren't in them they'd come and watch other people's scenes being shot. And there was a sense of, you know, that I was kind of like slowly kind of whittling them down and they were losing their comrades. And um, that, that definitely had an impact until yeah. eventually it was just, it was Fishburne and, uh, and Sam Neill kind of battling away in the, in the fires of hell. <laughs> and Miller dies, which is, and makes this big sacrifice play. And it's, it's, it's fascinating knowing what you've said in the past, but uh, but Fishburne's reluctance to embrace the concept that, of hell—that this is that is this is hell—he's going to because that, that he gives was Miller's- very he was very you know in, when Andrew Kevin Walker did his rewrite, there was a lot of talk of hell. He did a lot of dialogue that was related to hell, and because when you think about Seven, I mean, he uses a lot of religious imagery and a lot yeah. of religious dialogue, um, and I love that. And he did that, and then Fishburne read it and he said, you know, I, I like what this is but I think it's too overt. I want to draw back and I don't want to say hell. And which was kind of a big problem. I just paid Andrew Kevin Walker like a lot of money <laughs> to do what everyone at the studio called the hell rewrite. And then I've got my lead actor saying, well, I'm not saying hell. But, but in, the, in the end, I persuaded him to say it one time. And I think that one time has so much more power because he didn't say it and nobody else said it anywhere else in the movie, you know, so Fishburne was very right. I mean, he's a very smart man and, you know, a much more experienced filmmaker at that point than I was. And he was very helpful to me. He really, I think in his insistence in kind of like paring down Andrew's rewrite and, um, and just saying hell once and then not really discussing it anymore after that, you know, just leaving it up to the audience's imagination, you know, these people, have they been pushed so far? that they're imagining it's hell, but it isn't really. It's just something that could be mistaken for it. Yeah. Um, I think he made it a lot more powerful. And he says it in that scene with DJ, doesn't he? Where DJ's yes. doing Liberate Tutame, Save yes. Yourself from Hell. Yeah. And it's the one time you see Fishburne be, be scared, I would say. You know, he's, he's scared and his voice breaks a little bit. Because even though as a character, he's clearly scared, he's a great leader. So he's not going to allow the people he's leading to see the idea that he's scared or he's doubtful about what he's doing and the orders he's issuing. But, you know, at that point, you, you really see the fear, I think. And that's great. Yeah. And as I say, the fact that you kill him, you know, that he knows where he may be potentially going makes his sacrifice, I think, even more impactful, that he's condemning himself to a life in what might be hell, which is a hell of a thing to do. Yeah, he's dragging him and Sam locked together forever. 
I just really quick last last thing. What's your favorite sequence in the movie? What's your favorite scene in the movie? All these years later. That's a that's a very difficult question because you know I'm biased. You know, there's there's some great. Yeah, I'm biased. It's, it's all great. You know, it's hard. It's like so. Which is your favorite child? Tell me <laughs> of your three children. Which which is your favorite? Um, I would say for me, I it's the sequence leading up to Sean Pertwee's death. You know, that, that's a really, it gets me every time, um, you know, where you realize that the bomb is on board, the Lewis and Clark, and he's going to die. And, and it's just, it, it's at the point where everything's going horribly, horribly wrong. Or maybe the confrontation between Weir and, um, and, and Captain Miller, where Weir says, you know, basically, you're not, you're not leaving. She yeah. won't let you. Yeah. You know, that's, that's great. I mean, I was very lucky to have two really, really strong actors in the wrong hands. You know, a lot of that dialogue could, could not have worked and, uh, and they really brought it to life in very, very different ways as well, because Sam, I noticed, and that's why there are so few two shots in the movie with two actors in the same frame, because Fishburne would, would come and be super prepared. I think it's probably his stage because he was a stage actor to start with. So he would nail, like the first take he would do would be just off the hook good. And the second take maybe as good. And then the third take, not as good. So he gave it to you out of the gate. He'd thought about it. He did it. You could maybe give him one piece of direction to alter what he was doing slightly, but he gave it to you. And then and then Sam was more organic in his style so that he would, it would take him a couple of takes to get going. And then he'd start by, by kind of take four, he'd be getting really good. And at take five, he'd be getting great. He'd take six, it'd be awesome. But if you had them in the same shot, by the time Sam was good, Fish was like stumbling all over the place. And by, when Fish was good, Sam was still trying to kind of get, get his engine racing. Yeah. So I, I only did one big long steady cam shot with them, which was a two shot. And then after that, you know, everything else was in separate close ups. Paul Anderson, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. It's absolutely my pleasure, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. There we go. Paul W.S. Anderson talking about Event Horizon. Uh, and let's get into it. When did we first meet, see this movie? I was in York. I saw it. I was blown away by it. I was terrified by it. I was made a little dizzy and sick by that, that spinning 720 degree kind of opening shot or the opening pullback and uh, and my friend Graham and I my housemate Graham and I were so transfixed by this movie I had nightmares for two weeks straight Um, which is weird when you look back at the movie when I revisited it it's still a really fun gnarly disturbing horror Um, but I don't quite see where two weeks of nightmares (laughs) came from but they did nevertheless and my friend Graham then proceeded we became obsessed with Dr. Weir obsessed with Dr. Weir. And my friend Graham wrote a a comic strip called The Continuing Adventures of Dr. (laughs) Weir and Captain Miller in Hell. He did six of these. I have three of them. And it's Dr. Weir and Captain Miller running around in hell in different scenarios. And it always ends with Dr. Weir going nuts and going, where are we going to die, say? And it's very, very funny. I'll try and share some of them on the old Twitters or Instagrams. Oh, please do. But that, yeah, but that, this is the, the movie that, that, that dug into my, my young brain and has refused to leave for 25 years. What about you guys? Yeah, I think I saw a home somewhere in Northern Ireland, judging by the dates. 
Um, but I definitely did see it in the cinema and it definitely scared the bejesus out of me. I don't think I re-watched it as many times as you guys. I remember com- when I came to the Empire office and, and started work and, <laughs> and found two people obsessed with Event Horizon. I was a bit like, I mean, I'm familiar with the film. Okay. I, it is a good film. I liked it. It was a flop. Let's be honest. It was mm. a flop. It was and a it was flop, a, a yeah. critical, took a critical pummeling as well. So Not Yeah, that I, I don't get so much. I do think it's a good film. Like, I don't quite get you know, where you hate on this from. It's a good cast. It's one of these ones where you're like, all those people have gone on to have very, very respectable careers and had not necessarily had great careers before this. So, you know, okay, Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne were doing pretty well, but you know Mm. what I mean? He did show an eye for picking talent. He did show an eye for putting interesting people together. Um, They do have recognizable characters I guess it's the obvious sort of alien comparisons and stuff like that that have done it. because so much better than alien. Wow. Okay. Uh, I didn't realize we were starting in on the completely, you know, indefensible statements quite so early in the day. uh, Okay. Um, I mean, look, it's, but it is, I think it's perfectly good. I I like it. I had perfect. Did you hit perfect? I had perfect. 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 Okay. I mean, the modifier is quite important. I, yeah, I so I do I do like it, but I, I was a little bit taken aback by the sheer scale of of Yol's love for it. Yeah, but this has got stuff that Alien doesn't. So it's, on on the surface, it's got some of the same stuff: haunted house in space, right? Well, it kind of. So Alien's a monster in the house movie, like that feels very distinct. Whereas this is a haunted house movie, hundred percent. Admittedly, we becomes a monster towards the end, but it's it's a haunted house, house movie, possessed house movie, really, isn't it? It's 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 demons. It's got the whole sort of religious thing running through it, which obviously is a you know, person raised Catholic, I hugely appreciate all of those all of those cross shaped windows mm. that have been incorporated mm-hmm. into the design of the Event Horizon for reasons that make total sense. I mean, I need to talk about the interior designer on the Event Horizon. They're like, yeah, I'm thinking a door with spikes for no real reason in the entry. I don't see that being any kind of health and safety issue. I think the whole core should have a big sort of torture motif, a sort of medieval <laughs> rack-type aesthetic. Well, here, here's my here's my theory on this that I, I discovered when re-watching it the other day. The, what is it, the gravity drive? The This this incredibly oh, the innovative core, yeah. core that, that powers the Event Horizon, enables it to fold space in theory and jump through in theory. Um, as, as described so beautifully in Thor, Love and Thunder. Indeed. Uh, is, uh, in fact, obviously the opening credits of Game of Thrones. So what if the other world that they're jumping to... <laughs> it's Westeros. ...is Westeros. <laughs> and the reason the guy's on fire is he's been burned by a dragon. He's been burned by a dragon. Yeah. That's what that makes perfect sense to me. It's look, I have blown this thing wide open. You You're welcome, world. <laughs> Uh, so to answer your question, Christopher, I first saw it, obviously, in 1997 when it first came out. I dragged a group of unwilling friends to the Hatfield Galleria to the cinema there to see it and scarred most of them for life, I think it's fairly safe to say. I don't think they were big horror nuts. Not that I'm a massive horror fan, but, you know, sci-fi and the, the poster was quite arresting. The trailer was compelling. I was like, yes. Also, I went. I was going through a phase being unemployed and having just graduated university where I just went and saw everything that came out, which is the complete opposite of now, really. So uh, so that's nice. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Literally your job, James. Literally your job. But, you know, I, I remember coming out and I remember having that, you know, the Prodigy song, Funky Shit, or rather Funky Ship, as I think you're supposed to hear it in the credits here. Oh my God, that's some funky ship. Uh, I remember that rattling through my head and just I was just like, what did I just see? Yeah. Because... 
it's not just so... It does have, exactly as Helen said, it's got psychological horror in there. It's got a lot of jump scares. Like, he falls back on jump scares quite regularly, but that's not the only thing in there. So it's got psychological horror, it's got some quite effective, quite gnarly jump scares, but it's also got proper, hardcore, full-on, no-holds-barred gore, like, to the max. Like, that's level 10 gore in this film. Like, let's not mess about. And I'm not a big gore hound. I'm quite squeamish about this stuff. And luckily, you only see it in, like, flashes. It's not extended. But when you see... When he shows... Miller what's awaiting him in hell like some of that shit there's fucking there's blood there's dismemberment there's barbed wire for reasons why is there barbed wire on a spaceship uh, there's all kinds of horrible shit going on and those are the images that I kind of couldn't shake out of my brain for a couple of weeks afterwards like that, mm. that, that, I didn't like that mm. I think also what it has is it has genuinely likable characters mm. yeah. uh, who you want to see get out uh, or make it through uh, Jason Isaacs DJ mm-hmm. I, I really like him I, I always feel so sorry for him especially the way he goes out my god mm. oh god yeah that's horrible absolutely yeah. horrible I, I have questions though for two people who hail from a part of the Emerald Isle so he's doing a sort of very gentle Irish accent in mm-hmm. this isn't he mm-hmm. I've never understood why no, that, neither do I. That's maybe one of the questions I haven't asked him. Maybe she should ask him that. I mean, honestly, it's about time we had some Irish people in space. I've, I have long decried the lack of Irish people in, for example, superhero movies. Um, that's I why feel Bono like, loved it so much. It's why Bono loved it so much. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we need more Irish people in sci-fi as well. It was like Edge, previously I, was, I felt that I was running to stand still, but since seeing this, <laughs> I've loved it. An Irish person in a movie, brilliant. You should yeah. do more of that. And then Michael Collins followed along soon after. So famous sci-fi probably, movie. Probably yeah. Don't check the timeline. I mean, okay, just, just to be clear, there's the Michael Collins who was the leader of the Irish forces uh-huh. yes. during the yes. War of Independence, and then there's also the, the Michael Collins who yes. went to the moon with Which, Buzz Aldrin and, and Neil. It was the same guy, right? Both of those, same yeah. guy. It was yeah. the same guy. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for Irishmen. It was his thing. Yeah. Uh, yes, technically, Michael Collins, the Irish revolutionary uh, politician predated Event Horizon's release mm-hmm. and technically the release of the film Michael Collins about the Irish revolutionary politician also predated the release of Event Horizon but thanks to Wormhole ah. Event Horizon it was responsible for the creation of both Michael Collins a man and Michael Collins wow. a film I have no trouble believing that absolutely I, I have some trouble <laughs> if I'm honest but Skeptic. hey hey speaking of bad deaths I'm, I'm, I was I was certain that uh, Smith that Sean Pertwee was going to make it and then no he, no no this no. ship is this ship is fucked I love I, Smithy yeah, I love it. You know, this for sort of very Jeff Daniels esque uh, spoiler for speed, by the way. But the, like <laughs> that moment where he's looking for the bomb and there's what six seconds left, yeah. and he he just does a little wibble. He just goes a little. <laughs> you might get away. You might six seconds. You could probably get away. I I don't think. I mean, again, he is in a spaceship. So if the bomb goes off, it's not just gonna affect the immediate you know area. But then if he gets blown out of the the ship. Mm-hmm. Right, so say the explosion doesn't kill him right away. Right. Then he just happens to bump into a passing George Clooney or John Favreau. Then he bumps off them and then uses the momentum of that to fly back to the ship. I, that, that's what I'm saying on that one. But So I, what I'm saying is with Smithy, I'm not entirely convinced he's dead. <laughs> he might still he be lives. floating around somewhere. He's, but he's yeah. being catapulted through the solar yeah. system as we speak. No, he's dead. He's completely yeah, he's, he's completely dead. dead. Like he I mean, it's be been dead. 25 years, yeah. so, yeah. you know. Yeah. Poor guy. He can't hold your breath for 25 years. Yeah. 
but there wow. are... We're just full of information today, aren't we? Wow. I have some questions. I have some questions. I'm hoping okay. you can answer for me. So this film is brilliant, though I will say there are a few very, very small, minuscule even, cracks in its internal logic, and <gasps> I have a few questions. So, okay. so when DJ, when Smitty's going a little bit like trouble on the terraces and like punching everyone DJ goes full American psycho and holds a scalpel to his carotid yeah, yeah, artery yeah. and you're just yeah. like what the fuck that escalated quickly um, do we think that's the ship's influence he's just starting to lose it because he's said oh I haven't seen anything everything's fine like he, he he claims to be unaffected do we think that's that's him just going a bit I think there is an idea that it corrupts everybody a little bit isn't there because I mean even the very end of the film where you've got uh, Julie Richardson waking up mm. in apparent safety you get the sense that she's not like super free of it. I don't, that's the that's the only part of the film I don't like. I don't like the final scare. I think it's a bit lazy and cheap. Well, what do you think is happening there? We'll go, we'll go back to uh, DJ in a second. But what do you think is happening at the end? Do you think that the evil has not been defeated and that she is still in the in, in thrall of its its malign grip? Uh, do you think that somehow Weir has lived on and that is actually happening? That is reality, or is that just a vision or a dream? Because here's the thing: she's never seen Weir look like that. No. So, no. yeah. I, I think that. it's a dream. I think it's a dream. I know she hasn't seen him look like that, but let's not pretend that the internal logic is entirely, shall we say, watertight. Uh, you like, were the one saying it was perfect. Near, near, I mean, sure. Perfectly good, I yes. think is what he said. Perfect with its flaws. Um, but also, like, so Weir, when Weir comes back with his eyes magically returned and his sort of like new scarred face. Turns like, out where he's going, he does need he eyes. He does to need see. eyes to see. Do we think that's actually Weir, or do we think it's again the ship messing with Miller's mind? Miller, you mean Stark? No, no, Miller's mind. So, because obviously, oh, when we on. first see him, it's back in the core when Burning Man, not the festival. Oh, I see. Turns I see, into I see, Weir, I see, I see. and yes. he's like, "The ship saved me. I told you she wouldn't let us leave." Um, yeah. And you know, it, it, do we think that's actually Miller, or do we think the ship is again? It's just it, it's. I it, think I think that's sorry, think Weir, that's not Miller. I think, think it's Weir. It's not yeah. the ship fucking with Miller's head. I think Weir has been given some sort of. You know, it's not Weir anymore, is it? Yeah. Really, technically, yeah. but it's whatever malign horrible Lovecraftian yeah. evil has, has possessed him, has somehow managed to, you know, bring him back, reincarnate him in, in whatever form. Because he doesn't have a smooth transition from normal to mentalist, does he? Like, no, there's a step somewhere, yeah. isn't there? He where wobbles just, a bit. Because yeah. there's a bit when it's banging on the door, he's like, open the door! And he tries to open it and Jolly Richardson like puts him in an arm lock. And then he refuses to let them leave the ship. He's like, I told you she wouldn't let us leave. And he's like, I am home. And then disappears yeah, into the darkness. But like by that point, he's already gone. But, like but he comes a... back. No, no, no. But I mean, gone in the sense of yeah. like mentally. But, I, but, um, he, but he doesn't think he rallies because when he finds Peter's body in the core, he has that proper, he's like, oh no, Peter's. And then he has that last kind of like vision of his dead wife and then gouges his own eyes out. And that's the bit when he kind of goes properly off the deep end. So it feels like he fluctuates from uh, evil to not evil. I actually think that uh, the Weir is, I think it's a really, really nicely plotted character path. And I think when you rewatch the film multiple times, it's important to realize that he's basically insane at the beginning. And and I think it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful masterstroke of casting, Sam Neill, in this because, yes, I know he basically started off in movies in things like Possession <laughs> and... Um, obviously Omen 3 where he played the Antichrist you can't get much more evil than the Antichrist but since then he's kind of got this reputation by and large I mean he plays a, a, you know an arsehole in the piano the piano but you know by and large you see Sam Neill on screen you're going to get a dependable solid presence that you can you can 
could put your weight behind Sam Neill. He has right? no avuncular kind of wholesomeness mm, to precisely. him. Precisely. You want to mm. you want to hug Sam Neill. You want to you know if danger looms, if there's a T Rex, Sam Neill will usher you behind him, and everything is going to be okay. So I went into this movie thinking very much that Sam Neill was going to be the hero of the film, yep. and he's very much the audience's eyes and ears for the first. Until he just becomes the ears <laughs> for the first 40, 45 minutes or so. But if you look at all the signs are there, he is off the deep end from the moment that we meet him. But because we're locked into his POV, we don't really see it. And I think we also have the, the tendency to back the underdog a little bit. So, do, you know, yeah. we know that he's lost someone and is tormented mm. by that loss. We also know that he gets aboard this ship and everybody's like, who the fuck are you? We were I supposed mean, to have a holiday. Yeah. I mean, he's a genius, first of all. I mean, the, the, yeah. the fact that they give him absolutely no credit whatsoever. Like, he has, he has literally figured out how to, how to bypass space and time. I mean, that's pretty good, I would say. I would give the guy some props, but they just treat him like shit. Uh... But if you look at it all the way through, like, you know, the ships, there's always a sense, there's a sense for me that perhaps he was off the deep end back on Earth. But as he gets closer and closer and closer to the event horizon, its influence hits him a lot earlier. That's why it affects him in the, on the ship before they even arrive at the event horizon. That's why he has that really freaky, dicky vision of, of Claire in the, in, in the bath, first of all. Then, of course, he has, you know, one of the great scares for me, um, is the in the in the corridor when the lights go green and the lights go down and she appears behind him? Oh, oh, yeah. oh in the crawl space. Yeah, in the crawl space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I couldn't think of the right word. He is such a sympathetic character, and he's played so well by Sam Neill that it, it takes a little time for you to see the cracks, but the cracks are there. Mm. They're absolutely there. And you're right. The moment he goes, "I am home," and he disappears mm. into the darkness. Oof. The crawl then, space bit, I think, might have been where I was. I remember being most afraid during the crawl space bit. Yeah, you know. After the bit when he goes, this must be what a TV dinner feels like. It's, uh, you know, it's... it's Come but, out but, to Jupiter, get together, have, have some a laughs. few laughs. He, like, he, that, it's just, the, again, it's the use of the colour. It's freaky. It goes down. It's dark. It's light. And then she's there and obviously has no eyes. A lot of ocular trauma in this film, uh, which is never fun. Yeah. No, it is not. I'm not sure. Like, I, I wasn't entirely clear re-watching it. Does he actually gouge out his, his eyes when he scratches down his face? He seems to. When you next see him, he's almost, he's not guys, but he's, the skin has almost been stitched over. Like, it feels yeah, like he's done some kind of... Yeah, and then there's the bit of... where he's got the eyes open and there's, like, nothing in there except, like, red darkness yeah. somewhere in the background. It's very confusing. The it's state of his eyes is, is Almost as if it's slightly inconsistent, yes. <laughs> and you could, I mean, obviously there was a longer version of this film at one point. Yes, the... which has famously been lost forever, hasn't it? So. Yeah. I, I, I've heard of someone who has a copy of it, but apparently it is really, like, unsalvageable. Yeah. Like, you know, you can just... You Doesn't can it only just, exist on VHS or something? Only exists on VHS. Yeah. And uh, it was kept in a, I believe, a Transylvanian salt mine. So, this is... <laughs> what? Yeah, apparently this is true. I've got to be honest, in terms of, you know, professional storage, that's probably <laughs> not where I would have chosen to leave I mean, the only copy of my film. I, I'll be honest, like, you don't want it in a salt mine, you want it in... a the very least at the crypt of a church right? or something. I mean, let's yeah. try and keep it, you know, on on sanctified ground. Yeah, sanctified, you know, cold, so chilled, but not damp. That's really yeah. what you're going so for. Yeah, so sort of like an Icelandic church, something mm. like that. <laughs> but we're, I love we're, I love Sam Neill in this. Um, as I remind him every time I interview him. <laughs> but uh, he's so good. And yes, I think there's possibly an escalation <laughs> in Weir's insanity. 
But at a certain point, he becomes possessed by uh, an interdimensional evil, which may or may not be Satan itself. So See, I think I, I, I'll allow that. I never got it as kind of possession. Maybe it's just the way I read it. I read it as like, so the ship is a ship and it goes to this hell dimension. And when it comes back, it seems to sort of bring back some of that essence. And as I said, it's almost like it's alive, isn't it? The ship has now a sort of sentience. Maybe it's all like, and so it's, it's, and isn't it, it's compared to like an immune response, isn't it? It doesn't like them being aboard. So it's attacking them sort of psychically. Mm -hmm. And it feels like Weir is, you know, just succumbing to the influence. That why he becomes super strong, I couldn't quite tell you, <laughs> but he does. Um, but it, it feels to me like he just becomes, it, it unravels their psyche. Because the Doctor has the same thing, doesn't she? But isn't, isn't he becoming like an almost an instrument of the ship? It's almost like, to, to extend your metaphor, he's being like becoming a T-cell or mm. something and then becoming part of the immune system response. But I think, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying literal possession in the sense of one demon, one person. Mm. Uh, you know, the one demon, demon, one the demon has a character who overrides the person. But I think it is, you know, possession is still probably the right word. It's a force that is mm. nine -tenths of the taking law. over him. That's so true. <laughs> and nine-tenths of the ship. <laughs> nine-tenths of the ship. Nine-tenths of the ship, yeah. I also love the ship design. Can we talk oh, about that? Like, God. It's, Inside it's, and out. Proper old school sci-fi. So you have this big extension between the living quarters and the actual drive, which is obviously very important if you're using a fusion drive because you don't want people getting irradiated in space. You know, this kind of stuff makes sense. Mm -hmm. And um, and it just looks, it looks vaguely credible as a ship, but it yeah. also looks threatening as fuck. Like a gothic cathedral. Yeah. Mm. Oh, again, again, it's very medieval torture chamber when you get into engineering, and I'm Geordie LaForge would have fucking none of that, I'm telling you. Absolutely not. Uh, so it's Weir a health and safety nightmare. Weir didn't design the event horizon himself. He just created the gravity drive, and he did. He he wasn't like the guy who sketched out, I'll do a little bit of a spike here. Let's have uh, some spikes. Yeah. Let's have some bits there you can get impaled on. Upside yes. down crucifix here. <laughs> Hooks he, on the ceiling for hanging corpses. Yeah, he didn't, he yeah. didn't do that, did he? No. Uh, and of course, you know, Paul... W.S. Anderson, who was just Paul Anderson back then. Well, this uh, is the best film by any Paul Anderson. I think we can all agree. Uh, honestly, <laughs> I've made an indefensible statement already. <laughs> Fuck it, I'm going to double down. This is better than Boogie Nights. This is better than Magnolia. Wow. This is better than The World We Blood. <gasps> Whoa. <laughs> yep. Co-signed. Get out, both of you. I'm not sure I can back this up. She won't let us leave, Helen. I can't back it up with facts, Helen. Helen? 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 <laughs> uh, but I can't back it up with a feeling. Yeah. And so uh -huh. that's more important. What a feeling. What, what a feeling. feeling. What a feeling I get when I watch Event Horizon. Yeah, the, the ship was based on Notre Dame. It's basically Notre Dame. Yeah. Mm. Um, inverted. This cathedral is fucked. All very demonic, all very satanic, and that's possibly another one of the reasons why this film got under my skin in the way it does, because <laughs> I am uh, I am officially agnostic, uh, but stuff about God, the devil... Satanic stuff, possession stuff, uh, end of the world stuff mm. uh, really does get me. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I, I love The Omen so much and The Exorcist and films like that. Creepy as fuck. Creepy as fuck. And, you know, you always, as an agnostic, you're always going, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> what if I'm wrong? What if I've backed the wrong horse here? Yeah. I could be in trouble. Uh, but that sort of stuff always does creep me out. And there's a real, there's a lovely sense of dread that runs all the way through the film. Mm. Yes, a lot of it is cheesy. Uh, I can admit that now. A lot of it is schlocky. But there are moments when it just genuinely does grab you in this doom-laden grip and refuses to let go. Mm. I'm thinking of the scene the famous scene, the, the scene that James and I quote liberally, 
uh, and get wrong liberally. <laughs> yeah. So much. The scene between <laughs> DJ and uh, Captain Miller where they're talking about, you know, what this ship is and he plays back the recording. Yeah. Yes. Save yourselves. And, and Isaacs, honestly, in that moment, sells it so yeah. well. He sells a kind of because uh, you get the sense of DJ is also maybe a little bit on the agnostic level and he's maybe just a he little bit... just happens bit, to speak Latin. Yeah. He and just went just, to the right school. Maybe that's why he's got an Irish accent is just to yeah. imply that he went to Catholic school. Yeah. Maybe he's a lapsed Catholic or something like that and he's maybe realising like, oh, actually there might be something to all this business and we might be in the midst of it and none of us are going to see heaven. Yeah. I, I think he's... The, you're right, there's a pause. He goes, it's save yourselves. And there's that beat where he just goes... From hell. Yeah. <laughs> which is a great delivery and not to be confused queen. with one delivery which when he, when he goes, Doctor, you don't want to leave your ship? You never will. And yeah. he's like, who are I you talking to? <laughs> he's talking to us. He's talking to us. But that's the moment, that moment with DJ, that's the moment when you kind of, it lays his cards on the table. There's some freaky dicky shit going on on this ship but yeah. you're not quite sure exactly what it is and then it's like, oh, it's, it's Hellraiser. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, because it, up until that point, things. it could be aliens. It could be, yeah. you know, something sci-fi, but more kind of familiar, if you yeah. like, sci-fi. Yeah. More sort of tangible. It's, yeah, it's the combination of sci-fi and religious horror yeah. that's kind of unusual here. And still still quite religious. I mean, I guess Doom did it since. Not well. There's been yes. a couple of films that have <laughs> I'd say better. I'd say Doom did it better, actually. <laughs> I'm re- I'm really going to go for it today. <laughs> this is, wow! Wow! Okay. Okay. Oh my! Where to go from that? Uh, yes, indeed. But no. But you're right. There is something sort of. There's a mysticism about it. There's like I've always said. Like I'm not religious at all. I'm a card carrying atheist. I literally have a card. It says I'm an atheist. But were I religious, I'd want to be not a, resuscitate. Do not resuscitate. <laughs> I'm an atheist. Uh, I'd want to be a full bore Catholic if I was religious because I want the Latin. I want the incense. I want the great cathedrals. I want all of the trappings and all that shit because it's fucking cool. And also, like when you get into like horror stuff, like there's a there's a portentous, like intangible, almost primal thing that tickles at that thing in the back of your brain, which I guess makes people religious in the first place. That part that says maybe there's something going on that I don't fully maybe understand. There is something in the dark, and you maybe feel there is yeah. something beneath the the fabric of this yeah. world, and the hairs on the yeah. back of your neck go up, and you can't quite put your finger on it. And to me, that's much more terrifying than a maniac with a chainsaw. It, it is interesting. Like, I would love, you know, the, the percentage of Catholics in the U.S. population versus the percentage of Catholics in religious horror <laughs> in, in American art. I, you know, I feel like we, we punch way above our weight. But, like, you know, this whole Reformation thing has been no good for horror. I'm just going to go out there and say it. You need incense. You need ridiculous you robes. You need an old priest and a young priest and yes. a briefcase. But like, can you imagine like if like horror was sort of based on kind of evangelical Christianity? You just have like a like a, an evil priest with a guitar going, bottle of wine, fruit of the vine. When are you going to set me free? Clapping little tambourine. You know, it's not quite the same, is it? It doesn't have the way. No. I mean, you will get a couple of the old sort of puritanical preachers. I will give you, yeah, you, know, yeah, you know, fair yeah. play to Protestantism. You have given us that. Yay! Fire and brimstone. You've got a wee bit of witch burning going on there. But yeah. really, if you want religious horror, I mean, again, I'm thinking, I'm trying to think it through. Jewish horror, I guess there's been oh, yeah. a few uh, books uh, and, uh, oh, What was the one recently? A couple of years ago. Yeah, there when was. He's, when he's 
The vigil. The vigil. The vigil. That's it. The yep. vigil. That's fucking terrifying. But again, like steeped in mysticism, that's a Hebrew in it. Like again, it's that intangibility, that slightly almost alien quality to it. Where, like, because again, if I'm going to be preached at about religion, I 100% don't want to understand what's being said. I want to hear Latin. I want to hear Hebrew. I want to hear something that just sounds mystical and old worldy. Mm. That that that's what. What does was it the language me. in the Exorcist? Was that Aramaic, or are they speaking um, something completely um, possibly, different? Possibly, possibly. Yeah, I think so. I don't remember. Mm. Uh, Kerr mode might be floating around here. I saw, I saw him yesterday <laughs> in this building, so we can grab. We'll, him we'll jump out and ask him. Yeah. <laughs> he may he, he may have an exorcist alert on his phone. <laughs> he someone may crash through the wall. Someone has an exorcist question. Someone somewhere is talking about the exorcist. I'm here. <laughs> the good doctor at your service. Um, yes, very very good point indeed. Whatever it was that you just said. Uh, <laughs> but uh, well, so what? Uh, yeah, yeah, Claire in the in the. Uh, crawl space. Claire in the crawl space. Great name for a band. Write that down. Claire please. in the crawl space with the candlestick. With the candlestick. <laughs> Gouging out Dr. Weir's eyes. <laughs> uh, that is <laughs> genuinely about as scared as I've ever been yep. in the cinema. Uh, is extraordinary. Um, I'm not, you know, not. this is not to besmirch Paul W.S. Anderson in any way, shape or form, but where has that director gone? Yeah. It's kind of... He's done questions. some. He's done some okayish films. Like some of the Resident Evil films are watchable, but he's very much been a kind of two star to three star director. Yeah, throughout uh, this feels like this. I would say feels like this. One hundred percent is the high point of his of his back catalogue. I mean, yeah, I've I've enjoyed some of the Resident Evil movies, but to some extent, been laughing. I think at a and little not bit. with yeah. them. I, no, They're okay. I think some I was, of them are okay. I think I, think I laughed with Monster Hunter. I think no. Mm. I, I, a lot of the Resident Evils I was laughing at. I'm I've interviewed him a few times. I think he's a laugh with. Okay. For the okay. most part, for the most part, I, I think he. I think he gets it. He gets the absurdity of it all. Okay. But uh, but. But this still, is as good you would as like. Yeah, you would like been. him to. You know, he has a little bit of clout on the back of those films. I would have thought, and I, I would have thought that there was the potential to go away and do a low budget horror and kind of prove his, you know that he can do pure horror again if he wanted to. And and the fact that he hasn't maybe makes me yeah. think, you know, he just has no interest in mm. doing anything that isn't kind of popcorn-y and mass market. You, he's got a real feel for what makes horror work. Like, it, he definitely taps into something with this. Mm. It's like, because so many films, I always go back to the first Silent Hill movie, which is an excellent video game adaptation in terms mm. of aesthetic, plot, feel. It's just not frightening because... It, just, it has no feel for what makes you afraid, whereas this really, really taps into that. And I think it's very effective. Well, it's, it's the old thing, isn't it? But I mean, the, the thing that makes space horror really effective is that there is nowhere to run. Yeah. If, if you are on a ship and the ship is not safe, there is nowhere to go. And that's what makes, you know, the likes of... Isn't it? Is it Outlander? Outland? I always get those two mixed up. Outland, the Sean Connery one. The Sean Connery one. one. Yeah. Yeah, so I, mean, I know that's not on a spaceship, but it's the same thing. You cannot survive... Yeah the environment outside to an extent um total recall at, at times mm. you it is a sort of pressure cooker because you cannot go outside there is nowhere to run to um and it's the same you know with with alien and it's the same with this you there is no other option except i guess in theory an escape pod and hypersleep but yeah. yeah that doesn't always work out so well as we've seen in the alien sequels i do have some questions about why i mean i get the idea and chekhov's explosives which are laid out very early on but like would you leave just like just big blocks of explosives just sitting there on the floor in place where you can just press a switch and blow up the ship I'm, I'm just saying again I feel like Starfleet would have no truck with this 
I mean, there's there's a reason Starfleet doesn't get possessed by the devil quite as much as uh, as it as it happens. In, it's in part of the Prime Directive: do not get it possessed is. by the devil. That's, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's, that's that's the second rule, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think. I assumed that that was sort of, you know, left there by the previous crew in, in their final days before they all succumbed. Is that not? I think, well, so I assumed it was just, it was part, that's just how the ship was built. Because he was like, oh yeah, those are just there because then this does and you can use it as escape pod. It's all good. Like as if it's perfectly normal. Oh yeah, you're right. And they had yeah. their little yeah. cradles. The ship. Yeah, yeah. I, I get the sense with the previous crew and some of the footage that was missing is a mm. lot more of, of them. I get the sense with the previous crew that it all happened very, very quickly. That one minute they were in this universe and the next minute they were not. And then things went skewed yeah. very, yeah. very quickly. But it's it's fascinating. So what do you think happened to that other crew? Because we see this we see glimpses of the the sex, the you know, the death orgy. Yeah. So do you think they all went insane instantly and just started fucking each other to bits? Well, it feels like they almost end up in like a Cenobite pleasure pain dimension, mm. doesn't it? Because it all goes a bit BDSM off the rails very, very fast. Um, so like the Tory Party Conference. A little bit like the Tory Party Conference, yes. <laughs> I, I imagine that's where they got the footage Other from. party conferences are available, <laughs> of course. Oh, boy. But, you know, it, it, I, yeah, so I, I guess... It's 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 unclear. I mean, it's the eyes thing again, isn't it? Because you you see at the end of the video, the guy rips his eyes yeah. out and he's literally yeah. holding them yeah. out. So if if they literally jumped into hell and just switch, all went crazy, and then where did their bodies go? Did they just? Well, isn't there bits of organic matter all oh, over the yeah. ceiling of the bridge? So it looks like they all got turned to soup. And I have questions about that as well. Why then does the because when the blood starts literally coming out of the walls when the ship starts bleeding I assume that was more hallucination that it was, the ship was just fucking with them again you get a river of blood which washes Jolly Richardson down mm, a you know yeah, that was unpleasant thing it's not explained. Uh, it's not. Yeah, it, it, I mean, the ship doesn't take time to explain what's what's going on. I guess we, I guess we are trying to explain, you know, the things that happen in a hell dimension yeah. Yeah. Uh, via the normal laws of physics and biology, yeah. which maybe are mistaken. Well, I mean, you don't need eyes to see, yes. Jimbo. Of course, the answer is because it looks a bit scary. That's the reason. That's, but, scary, you know. yeah. but that's my point. I mean, going back to the idea of what what it is about this movie that scares you, and perhaps the, the scariest scene. So Claire in the crawl space. Yeah. But you're right. Anderson in this movie has a really tight control on all kinds of scares. You're right, there are really, really great jump scares, but there is that creeping feeling of dread. Mm. There is a, He's really good at country and atmosphere. Mm-hmm. There is, he's also good at, you know, these weird tonal shifts where suddenly you'll get Cooper blasting his way back to the ship yeah. and it feels like it's from a different movie. Here I come, motherfuckers! <laughs> that almost feels like a studio note. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. he's like the an, an archetype from that, the wise-cracking black guy in a horror film who makes light, you know, and swears a lot. But in fairness, he survives. He does survive. Most of the black guys mm-hmm. of the era did not. He does survive. Not. But talking about the different sort of feelings that he has for horror, like, he also has that, that thing for inevitability because I always think the Romero zombies it's always about inevitability isn't it they are coming they're slow but they will get there and you cannot escape the bit when Justin is in the airlock Mm -hmm. and he wakes up and it's I mean again let's talk about airlock design that seems very unsafe but the fact he's in there and it's counting down and there is nothing that can be done and he's literally just like empty the air out of your lungs cover your eyes curl up in a ball this is gonna (laughs) hurt like that's horrific there's blood flowing out everywhere I mean he dives and catches him through a little stream of anti-gravity yeah. blood. It's, See, anti-gravity CG blood. Yeah, it's so horrible. Yeah. I mean, the, again, the CG is primitive, isn't it? It's very primitive. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that the emphasis was was placed on practical yeah. effects. Yes. Or it wouldn't have aged well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's some parts that haven't aged well. No. Uh, Dr. Weir's attitude, for example. I mean, that guy's problematic. 
Yeah, um, and, and, and Cooper's sort of casual sexual harassment is a bit problematic as well. But. but Dr. Weir is the worst one. In wow, bold, bold takes Listen, here. in 1997, it was okay to rip your own eyes out and try and kill your <laughs> colleagues. But now we are moving on as a people. Yeah, and it's I've, frowned upon. It is frowned upon. I've, wow. opened my, I've opened my eyes and I've seen that that's bad. You're, so. you're just such an inspiration, Chris. Dr. Really. William Weir, I'm afraid to say you are officially cancelled. <laughs> So brave. So brave. <laughs> I was very upset by, by Miller's death because I did think, well, he's Lawrence Fishburne, he's going to survive, isn't he? Come on. But unfortunately, it's a, it's a case of grilled fish. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe, any time now, the arse end of the event horizon will return, bringing Miller back to us. <laughs> yes. Well, it hasn't even left yet. Doesn't go until 2040. That's a good point. Yeah. 20, yeah. What was it? Was it don't, don't we colonize as a permanent colony, colony on the moon in 2015 at the beginning? Where yeah, I go? think, yeah. is it Mars is 2032 and then... Yeah. It's one of those very optimistic readings of <laughs> yeah. where we are. I don't know anyone could call Event Horizon an optimistic movie. <laughs> oh, true, they true. literally go to hell. True. <laughs> it, it does, it argues against exploring space, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it, really? just stay just, at home and turn yeah. on the TV. <laughs> it's like, don't go out there. There's, there's dark shit out there that will get mm. you. This, uh, look, I think we can all agree that this is like a much, much better Ad Astra. Like that's, that's basically what this film is. Hey, I like Ad Astra and I you know it. I don't like daddy issues, <laughs> but I thought that was a brilliant film. Brad Astra is Sad Astra about his dad Astra. I do want, but I do, I would like more kind of solar system movies. Like I feel like we could have, um, you know, underwater adventures and that, what is it, Titan, the moon of um, mm-hmm. Jupiter that has like With Thanos' oceans. home planet, yes. Okay, not that one, a different one. Um, or is it Europa? Anyway, my point being, there That's are like freaking, there are like freaking oceans they could be exploring. We've had a few Martian horrors which have all been quite bad. Um, mm. But, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be, we've got sunshine. Sunshine was fucking great. Mm-hmm. Like, sunshine. I love sunshine. Yeah, it's very love good. It. We could have an asteroid mining as a basis for, you know, adventures or horror or even romance. Werewolves I don't on the care. moon. We could have werewolves on the moon. Why don't we have werewolves on the moon? I think there is a werewolves on know, the moon but film. Like, okay, but a serious one. Like, yeah. <laughs> a serious one. Serious one, yeah, James. On. We're taking yes. it seriously come here. On. Uh, all right, scariest, scariest bits in this film apart from Claire in the crawl space. What, what, what really gets under your skin? The division. For me, it's the, well, let me show you. Oh, I see. Oh, okay, yeah. That's that's still upsetting. Like, I didn't look away when I watched it again, just in advance of, of doing this podcast. I, I I didn't, but I have every time I watched it, I looked away. And when I saw it in the cinema, I kind of had to flinch and close my eyes a little bit because it's just it's really upsetting. Mm. I've become much more old and jaded now. I don't care. But uh, back when I was a, a wee lad, it was it was quite grim. A wee bairn, yeah. Wee idealistic James. That's wee a, idealistic, James. bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Aye. Um, I don't. I don't like. I don't like. Uh, Kathleen Quinlan going going after her son and then falling down oh, the and oh, the way her good. body bounces when mm. it's all broken yeah oh, poor, poor Peter's so like grim it. don't like it don't like it do not like it do not want that at all uh, yeah I mean there's there's so much I love about this film I've I've said most of the key scenes for me but there's also the the moment after Weir really goes nutso and he has that lovely scene with Miller where he spins round in the in the through the bridge of the ship mm. and he's like oh my god what did you do to your eyes we're going we won't need eyes to see that's actually particularly scary when he reaches for the bolt gun and it's gone 
which again, it's yes. been done many times, but it's still really creepy because mm. you know he's there somewhere. You're like, oh dear. But also I, DJ's death, where DJ goes, oh. "Don't worry, I'm I'm yeah. gonna, I'm going to keep an eye out for 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 Weir," and he clicks off, turns around, and there's Weir without his eyes going. You know, yeah. and then pulling, just eviscerating him. It's just, why did you do that? Why, why did, but, what did DJ do to you yeah. that deserved that? And you see his face, like you don't see the incisions when he's doing it, which again feels odd for this film because this film is not squeamish at all. But you just see him like picking up the tools. Maybe, you know, I guess it is in some ways more effective to just see him touching the tools and then to see him fully on display, kind of blood eagled or whatever he is. How long would that take to get? Because Miller's on his way mm. to try and save DJ. But by the time he gets there, he's had pretty much all his organs removed and his skin flayed and all all kinds of things. Mm. How long would it take to do that, Helen? You, you're you're proficient. <laughs> I'm, in this I'm area. obviously a, an expert butcher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess whatever is possessing um, Weir is is an expert in human cardiothoracic surgery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, in in human anatomy and the disassembly thereof, I suppose. It's particularly bad for Miller because obviously Miller was expecting DJ to kill Weir and save him so that he could have said the following day, last night, a DJ DJ saved my life. Oh, what we missed out on. Yeah. Oh, what a shame. Real harsh. (laughs) I was trying to make a way into into that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yes, that scene with uh, Miller and Weir on the bridge is great. And, you know, little things like your beautiful ship killed its crew, Doctor. Yes, well... Now she has a new crew. Now, now she, she has, has us. It. So good. So good. <laughs> Sam Neill in that moment. Because I know it was a miserable shoot for him once he became... Oh, proper, yeah. Those prosthetics are a lot. Weird, weird. Yeah. And when he's walking around in the, in the nutty. Yeah. Now, if you pause it just right, can you see his penis? Um, I don't There know. is a bit where he kicks Fishburne. It comes very quickly, but he is properly in the nud. Uh, also, he assumes. So he looks, and so he's got yeah. some kind I, of. I believe he is in the nud, but he yeah. probably has a, a sort of flesh-coloured merkin of some. Almost kind. certainly with spikes or something on it. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly, but uh, but he's so good. I don't think we've talked enough about fish. Uh, mm. Not not just the concept, love them, but Fishburne. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I say that because the one time I met Lawrence Fishburne, he went, "Call me fish," and I was like, "I will fish." That's I so will. Cool. That's very yeah, cool. That's very cool. Because uh, uh, Miller's great. Miller's great. Miller is really good. And and he just has that, you know, he's not kind of um, straightforward hero. He's not kind of asking for your love and trust at the beginning. That You know, he does have some hostility to our ostensible point of view character in Weir. So you're a bit like, oh, I'm not sure about this guy at first. And he, he kind of wins you over. It's, mm. it's not quite the, the um, pitch black reversal. Um, but it's not far off, actually. You end up very, very much thinking, no, we can trust Miller. Weir is deeply fucked now. And um, and you're desperate for him to get through it at the end. And, you, and, and you're pretty convinced he will because he seems to be the guy. And that's what happens. The hero that's, lives, right? The hero lives. And he's, he's going around, he's rescuing other people, he's discovering the truth, he's trying his best to deal with it. It's like plan A didn't work, so here's plan B, C, D, E. You know, we know how this goes. This is the guy, surely. And, this is the guy, and not. It doesn't. It's, it's you know, and, he, and the choice he makes as well. And they give him this tragic backstory where he didn't quite, you know, something. Yeah. Something he did led to someone's horrible death. He left in the someone past. behind. He's been tortured yeah. by that, and now he is the one who chooses to go behind. But where he chooses to go, mm. apart from into my friend Graham's comic strips, where he's having a, a, a grand old time with Doctor Weir. Uh, they go to the beach, they go to a bar, they go to all play- kinds of places. But he chooses to go to hell. Um, and again, he's kind of 
agnostic about the whole thing, isn't he? He's mm. you know he doesn't really believe in hell, and you know, and 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 Anderson said that Fishburne himself had kind of an issue with the hell side of the movie, and so getting him to play those scenes and dial into it, not you know because he he felt it was maybe a bit too too much, maybe literal. Yeah, maybe he butted against the idea it was a literal hell. Well, the thing is, I get the impression they're using as as Doctor Weir says, "Hell is just a word." You know, it's the just the idea is much, is much worse. Yeah, it's a dimension of pain and, as he says, pure evil. Uh, but who knows if it's? I don't think it's actual hell. I don't think you know Lucifer's running around. No, Gwend- Gwendolyn Christie like sitting up there in a t- in a tower with her wings. I think it's the same the same hell where John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness lives, and they're all <laughs> having a, a grand old time. Let's take some questions. We, I'd love to talk about this movie for a, a solid five or six hours, but <laughs> sadly we have to run to something else. So I'm going to take some questions real quick. So this one comes from James Gilmore at Metal underscore Slag on, on Twitter. Infamously, the released version was heavily compromised by a reduced edit timeframe and studio mandated cuts to remove gore. Was this in fact a blessing in disguise? Would more hell orgy footage have made for a less effective movie? I think it might have got a bit much. Like, it's already quite unpleasant. I'm not sure. And sometimes less is more with stuff like that. I think, you know, if we'd seen those prosthetics in detail, maybe they'd have been more upsetting. You know, seeing flashes of them, I think, maybe does make them more disturbing because your brain fills in the gaps. And maybe you make them, in your mind, they're more disturbing and more graphic than perhaps the actual models are. So... I, for me, that helps. For me, the, the fact is, the film is so quick, it's so fast-paced, it's barely 90 minutes. Uh, it's it, 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 Right from the beginning, that that, that music kicks in. Uh, is, is it Orbital right at the beginning? Uh, the music kicks in, that sort of driving, thumping house music kicks in. I'm not sure if it's called house music, I'm very old, but, you know... I'm, I'm, Hello, fellow kids. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I'm going full <laughs> Steve Buscemi here. Whatever that music is at the beginning, it's 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 not skiffle, and that's all, that's all I know. And the credits are like relentless. They're just going boom. Sam Neill, Lawrence Fishburne, you know, Event Horizon, quick, boom, boom, boom. The credits are over within seconds. And then you're plunged into this movie. And we've discussed about how it's better than Alien, obviously. But, you know, where Alien falls down is that it takes a long time for things to get going. And Event Horizon basically goes, no, I'm, I'm going to get going right away. And that's yes. why it's a better movie. I mean, Yes, Alien does not fall down in that regard. That is the building of the what? alien tension. But what are you talking about? I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, Event Horizon does not fuck about. Like, Weir wakes up, has a bit of a, you know, walks over to his incredibly creepy shrine that he keeps in his room, and then it pans away. He's on a space station. Boom, he's on a ship. Boom, months pass, and they're out there. Like, it's all very, very quick. Like, we're on the Event Horizon very early on. Yeah. Very quickly, and then yeah. all hell breaks loose. Literally. Quite literally. Quite literally, mate. Uh, It's not really a question, it's more of a comment from Jackie H. Treehorn, who just is talking about having a very favourite memory of Event Horizon. I saw it uh, when I was 17 with a bunch of guys from my high school American football team. We caught the last showing of the night. When we got to the theatre, the parking lot was full. Uh, The movie scared the shit out of us. Uh, When the movie let out, the parking lot was completely empty, except for our cars at the far end of the lot. With visions of an eyeless Sam Neill waiting in the shadows, we all spontaneously sprinted across the lot to our cars and drove home. (laughs) Whenever we get together, even after 25 years, we still talk about that night and laugh our asses off. And I definitely drove home with the dome light on. I mean, this is the thing. I'm a horror guy. I was pretty well first in horror going into Event Horizon. I'm very well first in horror after Event Horizon. I know there are better horror films than Event Horizon, but very, very few films have shit me up to the extent <laughs> that Event Horizon did, and I cannot explain that. Mm. 
really, yeah. without it's, six it's, months of therapy. <laughs> yeah, it's a combination of when you see it, but also it's a very effective horror film. Like, mm. let's not fuck about. Like, if you saw it today, if the effects were maybe a little updated in places, I still think it holds its own. Because I've not seen it in a long time. I watched the shit out of it in the late 90s, but I genuinely don't think I've watched it in 15, maybe 20 years. Did you revisit for this? I did, I did. Okay. I watched it again last and, night. And it think? 100% holds up. I, I must admit, going in, I was a little worried I'd have a bit of an equilibrium moment where I'd be like, oh God, I've been banging on about this film for decades and in shit. <laughs> but actually, I was like, do you know what? I had a fucking whale of a time. I really enjoyed watching it. And I was like, no, this 100% stands out. Apart from, as we said, like the CG liquid that, like, that yeah. looks a bit shit but all of the model work or the prosthetic work the design the production design is great the shit like it looks like a lot of money is on the screen when you watch it it really does um, yeah I, I, 10 out of 10 no notes perfect film yeah I think it is the alchemy of all of the stuff we've talked about I think it's the alchemy of you know the jump scares the steadily building tension the sense of fatalism about the whole thing the sense that most of these people are going to die and you have to hope your favourites live and actually with all due respect to Cooper and Stark, your favourites probably don't live. Like, no. I don't feel like those were people's favourites. So I feel like it has made you invest in characters it knows it's going to kill. Yeah. And it, that messes you up uh, to, to a greater degree than you maybe saw coming. Because I feel like, you know, obviously there's a contrast with with Alien again, but... Um, an inferior. An inferior. <laughs> an inferior pre-make. A pre-make of Event Horizon. Wow. Um, but like, you know, it takes a while for you to realise that Ripley's awesome, but then you realise that Ripley's awesome. But I, I, you know, I don't know that you have that moment with Stark and Cooper. But imagine, so for example, Cooper maybe a bit more. Cooper, yeah. I think, gets more to do. But Alien would have been improved fastly had Ripley become evil don't you think, and ripped her eyes out and <laughs> turned um, the tables on the I would, I would disagree. I would disagree as that. well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, would, I would disagree with that. All right. Uh, someone asked, is this Sean Pertwee's best film? Yes. Uh, hey, hey, hey. Well, I suppose, I think we've established that Equilibrium maybe isn't. He's quite good in Dog Soldiers, I seem to remember. Oh, Dog Soldiers Dog is soldiers. good. It's not Event Horizon good, but mm. it is good. Dog Soldiers. Last question is from at Fal Shopaholic. Uh, the movie set in 2047, which is only 25 years away. Our most exciting NASA efforts recently have been about shooting down asteroids rather than colonizing another planet. Should a certain billionaire be spending more of his money on SpaceX and leaving uh, a certain social media platform alone? Also, who would have thought that smoking on a spacecraft would be the least hazardous thing about space travel? I did think that I, when Smitty spoke. That. I was like, it, I, this doesn't seem wise to me. It, it made me think of uh, Thank You for Smoking. Do you remember where they do this sort of hand wave? It, Rob Lowe's talking about, you know, we, we need to do products placement in this sci-fi movie. So we just need a line about, thank goodness we solved the thing with the Cancer. yada yada that allowed us to smoke in space. You know, so, and literally, that's kind of what I was thinking the whole way through this. Oh, thank goodness we've solved the thing that allows us to smoke in space. It's true though, isn't it? it, it is. It's the thing that takes you out of the movie uh, <laughs> to a large to a large degree. It's like when I rewatched really Candyman ahead of watching the original, the, yeah. the, the new Candyman. Yeah. That movie, I... I got secondhand smoke from that movie alone. And you just think like alien, aliens, yep. they're always smoking. Always smoking. Where but, is the only character who doesn't smoke, if I'm right in thinking? This is an interesting thing. So there's an Arthur C. Clarke novel, which I think was Raise the Titanic, where they talk about uh, using CG, which at that point was science fiction, literally, uh, to remove smoking from movies because it had become such a social no-no. And all of these old classic movies had like everybody smoking all the time. And, and now it was so seen as so grotesque and outrageous that they were basically CGing it all out. 
But that is kind of almost where we are as a as a as a society, you know. I mean, we don't have it in modern movies, and when we see it in even a movie from twenty five years ago, we're like, "Oh, what the fuck is that?" You know. Mm-hmm. It's just imagine what it smelled like. Oh, God. Not just with the awful and all the human body parts and all the blood and stuff. <laughs> oh, that, that place would have smelled like an ashtray. The, the Lewis and Clark would have smelled like an ashtray. So, oh, yeah. you know, just I'm just saying. It. In a movie in which Jason Isaacs is eviscerated by Sam Neill, uh, in a movie in which people literally fuck each other to death, <laughs> it's the smoking I can't get on board it with. It is, guys. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Everything else is fine. <laughs> and remember, winners don't do drugs, but they do do event horizon and on that note that is it for our event horizon spoiler special i'm sorry it's so short in relative terms um <laughs> but i hope you guys have enjoyed it uh, it's time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such a lethal cunning do you see james dyer we can't leave she won't let us <laughs> was that a reference to liz truss she won't let, she won't, <laughs> she won't let us she won't let us <laughs> oh boy she won't let you leave it's goodbye from Do You See, Helen O'Hara. Um, Liberate Tutame. Ex Inferis. Ex Inferis. <laughs> Liberate Tutame Ex Impodis. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've been playing back the message. We just thought, we, we thought it said Toodaloo, but actually it means Toodaloo in hell. Toodaloo. <laughs> Toodaloo in hell. And it's goodbye from me. I am home. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> You're not. We're not doing it remotely today. 